Well, good morning, and let us pray. Lord our God, we thank you for your love and care for each of us. We thank you that you've spoken through your Son, Christ, and we pray that you would point us all to him this morning, that we would know him more and love him more. Amen. Well, a few months ago, I travelled to Melbourne to meet with a group of uh, school chaplains from around the country. We were there sort of as uh, Anglican representatives from our state. Uh, We had fellowship, we told stories, we shared resources and spoke about the future. It was quite a helpful meeting. Uh, But there was one conversation that I had that really, really stuck with me uh, as I've returned. Uh, The chaplain from Queensland shared that she recently had had a conversation with a student where the chaplain asked her what her plans were for the future. It was something of a what do you want to be when you grow up up kind of question. Uh, The student answered with plans. Why would you make plans? Everything just gets cancelled. So no, I don't have any plans for the future. It was a very COVID kind of answer. I mean, the student, understandably, had lived a significant part of her high school years, unlike most of us in this room. I mean, we, we went through those years thinking about our future, what we love doing, uh, who we love, what we want to do and be and so on. For this young woman, all those questions were put on hold as they went into lockdowns, as key events were cancelled, as businesses closed. The thing is, I'd love to say that this kind of hopeless response is solely a result of COVID. I'm not sure, though, if that's true. Uh, There was a Gallup student poll conducted in 2016 that found even then only 48% of students could say that they were hopeful about their future. The figures have subsequently gone down in that poll, but even before COVID, a majority of students in Australia, a majority were not hopeful about their future. I work with young people and we spend quite a bit of time thinking about their sense of meaning and purpose in life or what they believe a human being is for. And when I actually get them to write these responses down, sometimes it can be really disheartening. I mean, there are some positive ones. There's ones where students want to make the world a better place and to leave the environment in a better state than they found it. But about half of them, about in line with the Gallup poll, would write things like, the purpose of life is to get rich and own lots of possessions. Yeah, that's, I've seen that one quite a few times. Or our only purpose in life is species reproduction. Or just plainly, there is no meaning or point in life. Now, the, uh, the human decades seem to cycle through periods of hope and anxiety. I, I never had the privilege of living through the 1960s, but I've read that at least at the beginning, it was an exciting period of hope and optimism for the future. Uh, Something similar occurred at the end of the 19th century when human progress seemed unstoppable. The world wars sort of changed that mood. We cycle through periods of anxiety and hope, and they're not really arbitrary cycles, I don't think. They're not random pendulum swings. They reflect real challenges and events in those times. It's hard to judge a decade only two years in, but I suspect that the 2020s will not go down as a particularly hopeful or optimistic period in history. I mean, COVID has helped us along there, but we face serious global political economic challenges, and and that's really without enough progress in the issues we faced before the decade began, like climate change and global inequality. And now we read our headlines and we read of European wars and stagflation and, and hear the threat of foot and mouth disease to think about. 
Those like me who live quite comfortably on a global scale in a beautiful place like the western suburbs of Perth can easily filter out these global problems and challenges, but the mood can still sort of trickle down to us, still get to us. It, it, it can affect us and, and dim our sense of what the future might hold. It can dim our sense of hope for what is ahead. We live life day to day. We, we drop into the mundane without ever stopping to properly, properly hope to long for something better. You know, that, that sense is within us, but we don't give it much thought time. We, we instead just live functionally as if everything will continue as it always has. We forget to hope and really hope. But as Kieran said, we enter a new series today, which is going to run for three weeks, and it focuses on the story of Josiah in the books of Kings. Uh, this story happened to be what, what I wrote my uh, honours thesis on back in theological college a few years back, I've called the series Josiah, Hope and Heartbreak. I think there's a slide up there somewhere. Um, is there a slide on the picture thing going on on the screens? It's gone all black. I don't know why it's doing that. Um, just to tell you about the heartbreak. That's what the black was about. Thanks. Um, I've called the series Hope and Heartbreak. And, uh, and what we'll see is that Josiah is strange. He, he's set up as this brilliant king, a second David the one to bring hopes to reality, but just when, we're, when we're, we are within a hair's breadth of realising this, it's all snatched away. It all fails. If that's not heartbreak, I don't know what it is. It's utter disappointment at the end of it. That's what you've got to look forward to. Um, but the story through the heartbreak actually tells us of a really bright, a bright hope that's on the way. It tells us of a reality that's not going to merely match our hopes for the future. It's going to far exceed them. I really should have called the series Hope and Heartbreak and Hope, but that was rather awkward, so I just stuck with two words for it. Um, now, if you think the Josiah story is strange um, from what I've, how I've described it, then buckle your seatbelts because the story we tackle today has not failed to perplex readers of the Bible for thousands of years. As strange as it is, it's an, at least a very interesting story. It's set during the reign of King Jeroboam. God's people, the Israelites at this point, are divided into two, two kingdoms. You've got the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. Jeroboam is the king in the north, and he is not cast as a good king. In the story just before this, he does almost everything in regard to the worship of God that you were not supposed to do. It's like idolatry bingo. He sets up his own priests. He sets up his own places of worship. He makes golden calves, images to worship. And he makes an altar for incense and sacrifice at Bethel, not Jerusalem, where you're supposed to have it. Well, in the story, Jeroboam's just built his altar. He's ready to try it out. Here's a Renaissance painting, classical painting of it. And uh, he's ready to, uh, to make his sacrifice. And suddenly he's interrupted. This random guy comes onto the scene with no name. He's called a man of God from Judah. He's from the southern kingdom. Now, what on earth is someone from the southern kingdom here doing in the north? Well, he turns up and he starts talking, but he's not talking to Jeroboam. He's not talking to anyone else. He's talking to the altar. His unnamed guy turns up and starts talking to the altar. And this is what he says. He says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who offer incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. He gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. The altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. 
This is the first mention of Josiah in the Bible, and it's a prophecy about him destroying and desecrating Jeroboam's corrupt religious system. Now seize him, Jeroboam cries out, arrest him, shut him up. But as he reaches out, he finds that his hand is suddenly withered. And then the altar falls apart and the ashes spill on the ground, just as the, the prophet said. Now things aren't, this is not the best day for King Jeroboam, really. Uh, well, suddenly he has this complete turnaround. Uh, we, we get nothing of the in-between. Just suddenly he says, please, to the man of God, please pray and heal, heal me. Please pray to God and heal me. And the man of God goes, okay, and his hand gets healed. <laughs> and then it gets even stranger. Uh, the, the next thing the king says is, hey, you want to come over for lunch? And the man of God is like, absolutely not. God told me not to eat or drink anything while I'm here, and so I'm going home. And so he does. The story's not over. Suddenly we're sent into the midst of new characters. And we have another unnamed prophet. This guy is called, initially, an old prophet from Bethel. He's from the same place where the whole altar incident occurred. He's from the northern kingdom. And and, and this this prophet's sons come to him and they say, Dad, you should have seen what happened to King Jeroboam today. A new altar, random crazy guy, withered hand, didn't go to lunch. And the old prophet's like... What? Where? Where? Which way? Let's go now. And so he jumps on his donkey and he he rides that thing like a horse as fast as he can to find the man of God who's resting under a tree on his journey. And he checks he's got the right person. And then he says, hey, you want to come over for lunch? Same question the king asked. And the man of God gives the same answer he gave to the king pretty much. He says, absolutely not. God told me not to eat or drink anything here. But The old prophet doesn't accept no for an answer like the king did. Look, random man of God, I'm I'm a prophet too, and it just so happens that an angel spoke to me and he said that I had to invite you over for lunch and you have to come. He's lying through his teeth. But the man of God buys it and, and accepts the invitation. And so there they are, the two prophets from either kingdom, sitting around eating their lunch, and God decides to prophesy, or to speak through one of these prophets. Not the one who was deceived, but the one who told the lie. And so he stands up, the old prophet from the north, and he says, basically, God says, you've disobeyed me and you shouldn't have come here for lunch, out of the mouth of the person who invited him for lunch. Um, all right, well, this isn't going so well. Well, the man of... It gets worse, don't worry. Uh, the man of God fi- finishes his lunch... And the old prophet gives him his donkey to travel with. He sets out on his way, and on his journey, a lion comes out and kills him. It doesn't eat him, it doesn't eat the donkey, it just stands there looking ominous. Well, the old prophet hears the news of this, and so he goes out on another donkey, and amazingly, he has the courage to retrieve the body and the donkey with the lion prowling around the whole time. And then we're almost at the end of the story, and we read this. The prophet took up the body of the man of God, laid it on the donkey and brought it back to the city to mourn and to bury him. He laid the body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, alas, my brother. After he had buried him, he said to his sons, when I die, bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones for the saying that he proclaimed by the word of God against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places that are in the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. And then you know how the whole thing ends? 
with Jeroboam doing exactly the same thing he did at the start of the chapter, setting up his own high places, his own religious system. Nothing has changed. Nothing was achieved. Well, what on earth was that all about? (laughs) I don't know about you, but there are a lot of questions I have about this story and still have about it. I mean, why is it even here? It seems to contribute nothing at all to the overall story of 1 and 2 Kings. You could remove this. You could delete it, and you wouldn't know. It just seems to have no effect on the overall story. The main characters in the story have no names. Why? They achieve nothing in the story. Why? There's this level of injustice in the whole thing as well. I mean... Why such a severe punishment? And why is the man of God the one who gets killed by the lion and the prophet who lied gets away with with nothing? I mean, sure, the man of God maybe should be a bit less trusting, but really the old prophet was the one who deceived him and the man of God's only crime was really being a little gullible. But aren't strange stories fun? I mean... Any good novel deliberately gives you confusion, deliberately gives you mystery so that you keep reading. Uh, Imagine a detective story, and right at the start, they tell you what happened and who did the whole thing. It wouldn't really work. Uh, The confusion in this one king's story is there deliberately. The strangeness is, is there to make us think about it in a deeper way. So let me state it like this. The story is strange because I think it's deeply figurative and symbolic. If you read it as a straight history, it won't really work. If you read it as a symbolic story, you'll get a lot more out of it. It's figurative. It reads something closer to a parable of Jesus than, say, a a history of the parish of Cottesloe. Now, why do I think this? Unnamed characters. And notice how awkward it is through the whole chapter, saying the man of God, the old prophet from the north, the prophet from Bethel, the one who invited him... The, the storyteller gets, gets a bit cumbersome using these uh, sort of titles and, and for us reading it as well. The writer would have felt this and kept deliberately doing this, not giving them names. Now, names in, in Hebrew storytelling are really important. That They say something about the person and their life. Uh, if they're unnamed, it's not because the writer f- just forgot their names. They would sooner give them a name that fit their character than leave them unnamed. And so it's a clue that something is going on, that we should probably read these characters in a different way. If the characters are symbols for something else, then having no name seems fitting, seems to work. It's a clue that these characters are functioning differently. Now, the story also comes at the point in the Old Testament, as I said before, where one of the big problems is the divided kingdom. God's people split into northern and southern kingdoms. And the question is, what happens to these kingdoms and why? Notice that we have a prophet from the north here, the old prophet, and a prophet from the south, the man of God from Judah. A northern kingdom, a southern kingdom, a northern prophet, a southern prophet. And the northern prophet sins first. He's the one that lies and deceives. He disobeys God's word and causes the southern prophet in a way to do the same. Leads him into it. Just like the north, northern kingdom corrupts their worship before the southern kingdom does in the one king story. And what's going to happen? Well, the corrupted worship of the north, the sin of the north, is going to lead in time to the death of the southern kingdom as well. Actually, the death of both of them. Both kingdoms 
are destroyed in time. And at the end of our chapter, there's a prophecy there that both prophets will lay in the ground beside each other, uh, just as we see in time, both kingdoms being destroyed beside each other, both reaching the same fate. Oh, it's all a bit bleak, isn't it? <laughs> all a bit hopeless. It's, uh, imagine you're sitting there reading a novel and your friend turns to you and says, I read that book, and at the end of the story, they all lose and all the main characters die. You're like, oh, thanks. I really needed to know that. Um, Penn and I, um, most mornings, get up pretty early in the morning to do some exercise before the kids wake up. We have to get them to school and, and we get off to work. And I, I do my training outside with only a very small cover over me. I think the worst time of year, is, in terms of motivation, is about May. It's dark and it's cold, it's wet, but you know that it's only going to get worse. It's dark, going to get darker, it's going to get colder, it's going to get wetter. Mid to late July, we did around now, that's not as bad. I mean, sure, it's cold, it's dark and it's wet, but there's one difference. The winter solstice has passed. Every day the sun comes up earlier. And we know now that we're closer to spring than we were to the start of winter, than we are to the start of winter. Now, I can handle this time of year because we haven't got that long ago, because there's hope there. And I began by speaking about how our present moment as a society seems to be one that lacks a bit of hope. If you noticed, this is in our, our general popular storytelling as well. Novels and TV shows and movies, I think, have become increasingly dark over the last couple of decades, increasingly lacking in hope. And while this sermon has been rather bleak so far, I want to finish uh, the sermon by throwing all that hopelessness in the bin and showing us why we have good reason to look forward, figuratively speaking, to earlier and earlier sunrises and blue skies ahead. The story itself actually features glimmers of hope, and that's part of its function. It speaks of King Josiah to come, who will destroy the, the, the corrupt religious system, the, the thing that's caused the problems uh, so far, and, and bring the people of God back onto the right path. The whole story of one and two kings looks forward to this King Josiah to come, who will set things right. Finally, an antithesis to Jeroboam, a kind of rebirth of King David, uh, the, the good times when things, when things were going well, a time when God's anger at sin would give way to forgiveness and hope. And I think our society really needs a story like that, a story of hope, a story of a time when COVID won't interrupt and cancel everything, when people won't, we won't have stories of people suffering and dying from viruses they don't deserve to have, a time when the world will actually be fair, when the poor would be looked after, when humans will, will proper, properly care for the earth, when we will treat each other with selfless love, not self-interest and violence. Imagine if we could all live in hope, real hope for that kind of world, when we wouldn't just live day to day, we wouldn't just find our energy sapping away through the mundane and repetitive. Imagine if we could press on and persevere knowing that Winter's almost done, and each day gets brighter and warmer and drier. We need that kind of story. We need that kind of hope, I think. Our friends need that. Our society needs that. Our storytelling needs that. Now, the, the writer of 1-2 Kings sets it up as Josiah, but, but it's not Josiah. He was a glimpse. It's a glimpse of what could be. 
a glimpse of something better. Have you ever um, tried snorkeling in the Swan River? <laughs> There's plenty of marine life there. You, you'll, you, if you're lucky, you'll see a stingray and a flathead. You'll see huge schools of blowfish. Uh, you'll probably see more ugly, blobbling jellyfish than you've ever seen in your life. And you can't go snorkeling in the Swan River and think you've done snorkeling. We just got back from Ningaloo, and that's snorkeling. And, and I hear that the Great Barrier Reef is even better. Never done it, but I hear it's amazing. Swan just doesn't compare. Even though it's still snorkeling, it's a taste of sort, sorts of what could be. Josiah is like the swan, and Jesus is like the Great Barrier Reef. Josiah, great king but a glimpse, really a very partial and somewhat distorted glimpse of of what was to come. Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Hope of Hopes. You want hope and and that's where you'll find it. This chapter sets up Josiah's hope and I want to set up Jesus' hope because that's where it lands in the end. You, You want power to overcome disappointment and meaninglessness at a path to a world where humans will live properly in joy and peace and forgiveness, it's in Christ. It's there in him. When we entrust our life to Christ, we find what our heart longs for. We find strength there and power there and life and vitality and peace and joy and most of all forgiveness and unstopping love and sure promises for the future. And so the message of this series and, and, and this story today is, is let's realise the beauty and the strength found in the love of Christ because he's never going to disappoint. And when he comes again, we will all know the reality of his promises, his power, his strength, beauty and joy. Did you notice at the end of the One King story we covered that both prophets end up buried alongside each other for the ancient Israelite, their practice in death was burial, not cremation. And that was really important because burial suggested resurrection. The two prophets buried alongside each other because in time they will rise alongside each other. Just as the two kingdoms will rise alongside each other and all God's people will rise alongside each other through death. To resurrection. Reflecting on the story of Christ now, aren't we? Death and hopelessness through to resurrection to glorious eternal life. It's a story that points us to the kingdoms, it points us to Christ, and it points us to the resurrection of all things. That is the true end of the story. Resurrection to eternal life through the resurrection of the Son of God. May the story of that hope and joy be with you always. Amen.